Welcome to the Reframers Podcast. Arguing with friends and fam about politics is hard. New plan. Let's reframe what it means to discuss and disagree by talking and listening to each other. We're the Reframers. All righty. Welcome, everybody, to the Reframers Podcast. We're so happy you are here. I'm Cassie, and I am joined by Aaron and Zach once again. Hi, everyone. Hello. Welcome back, everybody. How are you guys doing? How's your Wednesday? Oh, man. I don't. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> busy week at work this week. Yeah, pretty good here. I don't know. Busy also, but I I wasn't running before we started this meeting, so I think uh, <laughs> maybe a little less busy than Aaron. Catching my breath just a little bit. I had to run and move my car so I wouldn't get a ticket. And I'm glad that I did because the parking meter dude, I could see him coming down the street. Oh. He was like three cars in front of my car. So it was good timing. Oh. Good, good. That is all of my experiences in San Francisco is like running <laughs> to move my car or moving my car too late. <laughs> yep. And parking tickets, if anyone doesn't know, in San Francisco are like $90. So oh my God, more than that, right? It's an absurd right? amount of money. That's so insane. Oh yeah. my gosh. That's this is nice. an entirely separate conversation, but all of my experiences traveling in the city are horrible for anyone who doesn't know, which could be many of you. I feel bad, Erin. It's not the city. It's my ability to travel in and out of the city. I do like you and to visit you and my sister, but uh, on my list of things that have happened while I was driving in and out of the city, I have gotten my car towed after Outside Lands. I have had it ticketed multiple times for a parking ticket. Even when you're trying hard, it can be those dang signs. We drove into Hamilton one time and paid for a parking structure ahead of time on an app that then took five to 10 minutes of driving back and forth between two parking structures to find it. Come to find out they had overbooked the structure, no spots available. All right. So we're running late. So we pay for uh, a very sketchy parking lot on the side of a street somewhere where we drive in and we literally think people are living in their cars in that parking lot. So I immediately say, never mind, I'm backing out. I back out over some glass and then I pop my tire and we missed Hamilton. So we have a lot of serious trouble driving in the city. And I'm very amazed that Aaron not only lives in the city, but has a car in there right now. I truly didn't think you were going to come back to San Francisco after the <laughs> Hamilton fiasco. Was I was like, they're I never needed, coming back. This is it. <laughs> I needed a year. I needed a year. I don't want to see, smell, or hear about San Francisco. I just purge it, and then we can reconsider. And it worked. Now we've had plenty yeah. of great experiences in San Francisco, but I think we needed a break. We're, we might not be city people, Zachary. Well, I always knew that. <laughs> yeah, sorry is this is this a new discovery i thought yeah. i was more i don't know adventurous and stuff like that but i i, I might not be you guys I, it might be a comfort zone thing for me well regardless i'm glad that your car has moved we're not getting towed and we're free to start talking about our topic this week Erin, why don't you tell us what we're going to chat about so this week we're going to talk about religion and kind of the inner mingling of religion and politics it's obviously a really big deal. There's a lot of issues that are influenced by religion. I think particularly now with the evangelical tradition in the United States, for the most part, there's obviously many other religions in the United States, but that is the dominant one when it comes to politics. It's pretty interesting. And I think people have a lot of questions about 
how it works and if religion's adequately protected, if it's under attack, if it has too much say in politics. I think we're just going to kind of talk through some of that. I'm so yeah, excited. Those are literally all of my questions that I always have. So I have been really looking forward to hitting this one. Yeah. And this week is going to be, I think, interesting because it's very subjective. I think a lot of this, like there's, there's data on, you know, how religious the country is and has been and at what points in time and stuff like that. But this is going to be, I think, a lot of opinion and more so maybe than any other week. We'll put the part where we say we're not experts up front just because religion is very personal to everybody that practices a religion. And so, you know, this is just purely a discussion for, you know, debate sake or discussion sake. We're not like advocating for any, you know, way or, or religion or anything like that. I think we're all pretty tolerant people, but just know that if you disagree, that's okay with us. We're just trying to hash it out. So we hope you enjoy it. So do we want to start where we have not actually been in the last couple of weeks because we had a couple different kinds of episodes with what the founders thought about religion. It really makes oh sense to God. start here actually, particularly with religion. How much time do you have? Do we have a whole college course or are we just trying to condense it down? <laughs> I think you should give me your summary version, which I'm sure is comprehensive. So basically what I was able to surmise for what the founders thought um, basically about religion is my sense growing up was, and what I learned was that they were deists where basically the deist idea is that there is a God, but the God creates the universe and then lets it go like a clock. And then the universe just unwinds like the clock, but he doesn't interfere and, and whatnot. So that's what I learned growing up. Now doing research for today's episode and, and this discussion found that really that maybe is less true than it, it used to be thought it was. It seems like a lot of the founders or indeed just the colonists at the time were generally Christian. Now, reading the constitution of the founding documents and things like that, there's not a ton of mention of God or, or anything you know, overtly religious, although God is mentioned in, in the documents. It's a pretty secular text, but it seems, I think, I would say, convenient to say that they were just deists and not religious. Now, I think it's pretty clear they were religious, although they tried their best to maybe not have it be overtly part of the government. Interesting. Okay. I got to jump in right here because yeah. that's not what I was taught for one, very much taught that the founders were all Christian, very, very influenced by their Christian ideas and beliefs in creating the constitution. I think I am more partial to that line of thinking in general as well. You know, if you look at some of their extra judicious writings, like letters, internal letters to each yeah. other and stuff, there's a lot of Christian references in those and referencing God in like the preamble or the uh, declaration of independence, like one nation under God is in our pledge of allegiance, which I actually don't know when the pledge of allegiance was written, but you know, under God, capital G, mm -hmm. I think that's for sure a reference to like yeah. Christian God. And so I don't know if your characterization of the constitution as a primarily secular document is so straightforward. I think that's actually up for debate. I don't know that it's one or the other necessarily, mm. but I don't, I'm not sure that I, I think a lot of people would disagree with that characterization actually. And there well, is like, also, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say what I mean is like, there's not like, there's not overtly religious. There is like you mentioned references to God and, and it's not just lowercase, it's, but you know, Big G, right? 
but I, I what I mean by that is that it's not there's not religious laws baked into the structure. Right. It's so, not, I guess, I guess it's that's not I mean. creating a theocracy. Right. Yeah, right. And it's not right. establishing a national religion of one kind or anything like that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And that's for sure true. Okay. What, what else did you have on that? One of the things I found was interesting is that, that every state constitution does mention God or, or something about the divine, which is interesting because we know that, as we just kind of said, the First Amendment prohibits any law being made about the establishment regarding religion. So you can't have a national religion, which is something that like England had, right? Where at certain points in England's history, the king was the church, right? Like religious England and the religious, you know, tradition have a very complicated history. And so that was something that was expressly kind of forbade here. But I think it's undeniable, like you said, Aaron, that that the founders were heavily influenced by Christian, you know, values and thought, and that maybe those values more so than anything leaked into our founding. Right. And we're using Christian really generously here, but between the different sects of like Protestant and Catholic and Quaker, like there's different kinds of practicing Christianity, right? And so one of the reasons why, not not the only reason, one of the reasons why the colonists came to the U.S. in the first place was for this freedom of religion because of the national religion in the U.K. I think from the founding, literally in this case, religion, especially Christianity, and that was obviously the predominant, but other religions likewise have members, followers of other religions have migrated to the United States for the very same reason, you know, Jews and Muslims and Catholics and, you know, pretty much everybody has at some point, you know, you can track it in terms of waves, has migrated to the United States for our religious freedom. From the outset, the founders' beliefs, and, and not just the founders, I would say, but the colonists' belief, because I think I saw something that like 98% of individuals, you know, colonists at the time, would describe themselves as Christian or identify themselves as Christian. So that obviously has a huge influence in how the country started and got rolling. So I have a question. How does how does it track that when we are growing up, we're taught that the founders and the, oh my gosh, I just lost the word. The, the people who came to America originally from England and elsewhere mm-hmm. coming, they always Pilgrims. teach you, Pilgrims, thank you. Colonists. Colonists. <laughs> Whoever. <laughs> Why did all these words leave my brain? Thank you. <laughs> the people who came, the pilgrims and the colonists. Why were they coming for religious freedom if it sounds to me like the countries they were leaving are primarily of Christian descent and they're coming and they are primarily Christian? Like, what is the difference? What are you trying to be free of? It's the difference. So that's that's thinking of. Christianity as sort of this broad umbrella that you can freely exercise in any capacity. But if you think about it in the time period, and this is still a little bit true today, but not as much, like the way you would practice being a Protestant could be really different than the way you would practice being a Catholic. And there would be laws and rules about like, you're literally not allowed to be I don't remember what it was at the time because they actually flip flop back and forth, but those were the two main ones in in England at the time, mm-hmm. switching back and forth between like Protestantism and Catholicism. And so you actually couldn't freely practice, even if it was in like the Christian tradition, because they were a lot more segregated than they are now. Yeah. And, and so I found something on Pew that breaks down religion 
in the U.S. today. And just to give you a sense, I mean, I think Aaron mentioned at the outset of this that the evangelical kind of sect or you know segment of Christianity is the most prominent, which is true. But even breaking down the evangelical, and just so you know, I can put a number to that. It's 25 percent of the country identifies as as evangelical. But within that 25 percent, there's one, two, three, like 15 probably different subcategories under evangelical. Baptist, Methodist, non-denominational, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, Episcopalian. Nope. Yeah. So there's a bunch of those different, you know, flavors of it, which I don't remember which specifically was the ones, but the very first, you know, colonists that came here were one of those guys who said our, you know, the way we want to practice Christianity is outlawed in England. And so they came over and on the Mayflower and landed and here we are. So even though it is under the big umbrella, like it, they felt it was different enough that they had to leave their country to, to come here for that. Cool. I have some fun facts. Uh, yeah. Just looking on Wikipedia, my BFF, feel like I'm back in college here. Okay. In 2019, Christians represent 65% of the total adult population. And then it breaks it down. Like you mentioned, Protestants, Catholics, Mormons, People with no formal religious identity then formed 26% of the total population. Uh, When consolidating all Christian denominations into one religious grouping, Judaism is the second largest religion in the U.S., practiced by 2%, which is, of course, very different than the 65% of all the different Christian denominations, Mm -hmm. followed by Hinduism, Buddhism, and Islam, each with 1% of the population. And Mississippi is the most religious state in the country with 63% of its adult population described it as very religious, saying that religion is important to them and attending religious services almost every week. While New Hampshire with only 20% of its adult population is described as very religious. And so they're our least religious state. Interesting. Yeah. Makes sense, right? We always think of the South as being extremely religious and Mississippi is definitely in the South. So that tracks. New Hampshire is kind of surprising to me though. That's not what I would have guessed. Yeah. Interesting. Maybe it's due to their size. Like maybe because they're, they're tiny, like because their bucket is smaller, you know, their pie is smaller. Like if they have even just a slightly percentage of people that are not as religious then like that knocks them down to the bottom versus if they're from Washington or something. No, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm Well, in like California, you know, people might think like, oh, that's a most secular state because of places like San Francisco, but there's a huge conservative and religious population in California. So it doesn't surprise me that it's not California, but I I could Mm -hmm. see other people being surprised that maybe it's not as secular as they thought. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So do we want to get into where are we at with religion today in the United States? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So we've mentioned this a couple of times. But the practice of religion is a protected right that we have, and it's in the First Amendment of the Constitution. It's one of those five rights that we have. And the language about religion is often referred to as the Establishment Clause. So if you've heard that before, it's because of the way it's written in the First Amendment. And the language is, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So that's what it's talking about. And a couple of values are at stake when we talk about legal cases, really, about religion and what you can and can't do. And one of those is freedom and like liberty, kind of what we've been talking about. And then the other one is equality, the the idea that the government can't 
throw its weight behind a specific religion because then that religion is going to be favored and we don't want to favor or disfavor certain citizens. Which makes sense, right? And, and that I think is a tradition that that heavily comes from like maybe English common law, right? Where we want to have a, a law system that's as much as we can make it a neutral arbiter of, of applying the law. So if you have religious influence coming into legal decisions, then you're obviously giving an upper hand to practices or followers of that religion over any other. So I think that that's my opinion is I think that's a good thing in our legal system that that as best we can try to keep those things separate. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting there. The government, at least through the Supreme Court cases that have dealt with it, is really concerned about entanglement of government defining religion, like really want to stay away from that. It inevitably comes up sometimes of like, oh, these people, this particular religion wants to do something like to practice their religion that is maybe against the law. Like one of the cases is about these Native American people who wanted to smoke peyote as part of their like religious tradition, basically. But they worked as counselors at a rehab center and they were fired. And the court ended up saying, you know, this is a law that applies to everyone. This isn't just about you and your religion. That's one of the like important tests. But, you know, we're not going to allow you to essentially have the right to do that in this position. Mm. Potentially they could get another job that would be okay with that. They had to kind of almost get into, well, is this like so essential to the religion that it has to be protected over this other like law that Oregon made, this is the Oregon case, about not being allowed to have illegal drugs, which is funny because that's totally different now in Oregon. But the government is really concerned about getting involved in these entanglement issues of like trying to define what is religion. They really, really try and stay away from that. And another example, I just have to give this because it's so relevant, has to do with religious accommodations for vaccines. So this obviously is really important right now with COVID vaccines. There's only, if your employer has a vaccine requirement, there's only two ways that you can get an exemption. One is a medical exemption, which you have to get from a physician. And one is a religious accommodation, religious exemption. And it's interesting because there's there's sort of an argument that you can't really ask that much beyond just, do you have a religious, oh, what's the word? belief no um, you disagree with this based on your religion i can't think of the word i'm sorry oh, objection objection thank you <laughs> do you have a religious objection to to getting this vaccine and you know the the belief has to be a sincerely held religious belief that's that's the test but you know how much can you really get into what's a sincerely held religious belief you start doing that right. even though you're a pri- private employer it's the same kind of issue with the government you start getting into defining like what's religion and what does it mean to, to be like, really believe what you believe, you know? And so there are these kind of entanglement issues that as like, as much as we would love for religion not to be involved with government and to keep those totally separate, there are these inevitable places where it's going to overlap. Yeah. Cause how much do you as an employer or as the government want to push on the sincerely part of that, right? How much do you want right. to test to say, oh, I don't really think you're sincere. And then you end up discriminating, right? And so then you get into a bunch of troubles. So totally. But then on the other side, it's like, well, what if this person has never gone to church before and they have just discovered this because they don't want to get vaccinated, right? And they, they, you know, are making this claim now. And 
but even that it's like, is it worth it? Is it worth it to like get into that and risk the mm-hmm. discrimination claim later? Maybe not. Right. And, and I think that probably also weighs into the fact that you're able to establish a religion so easily in the United States, a, a legally recognized religion, right? Like there's so many beyond just the major denominations that we've already kind of just mentioned. Like that's why you get churches of, you know, that are kind of abnormal maybe, or unusual that can attain like, you know, tax exempt status, because if you can demonstrate that you are sincerely holding these beliefs, then I can make the church of, you know, bananas are God. And does somebody really want to like test, you know, push me on that as an example? Oh, but It's totally true. Great video here for anyone who's interested. John Oliver did a segment on religion and churches and specifically like church exemptions. It's really, really good. He established a church, like literally they, they incorporated it or I don't even know if it's incorporated, but they formed a church. Basically they got tax exempt status. They had like a whole mission creed and everything. And people sent in tons of money and stuff and they ended up donating it all. But it was just like to illustrate what you can do with one of these exemptions. And it's funny when I actually like do some work, well, a lot of work with nonprofits and I look at 501c3 exemptions, like the requirements for them and requirements for non-religious entities are more strict than they are for religious entities. Because again, it's this whole defining what's a religion issue. But it's funny because all the, no, many of the cases that come up when you're dealing with these exemptions are with Scientology because mm-hmm. Scientology is kind of like, particularly known for using religion to get profit. And that is like pretty much the only place you can get super dinged about like your exemption and and being a church. If you are like blatant, honestly blatant about like how you're using it to get money, but it's got to be like pretty bad, which is why they're all like the Scientology cases. There's a lot of churches that get a lot of money, right? And they don't get investigated in the same way. And that's because if you're a church, I'm, I'm, Assuming if you're a church with tax exempt status, that means that any funds you collect, you don't have to pay taxes on, which distinguishes you literally you don't from, pay taxes. From a, you don't from have a to business. pay property taxes. Like, how is this an okay thing? I don't understand. I was gonna ask. I want to know. Do you guys think that's is that cool? It seems uncool. Maybe because I'm not a member of a church. Maybe if I was a member of a church, I would feel more inclined that they are, you know, doing great things with their money. Is that the is that the play that they're doing good things well, and I, shouldn't be taxed? Well, I don't think it's just churches, right? Because the, you can, you can, many charities can get tax exempt status, but like Aaron said, if you're not a church, the requirements are more difficult. So it's not just that churches don't pay taxes, but if you apply for the, the exemption, you can get it. And, and I think a lot of charities are tax exempt, which makes sense. Cause if you're, if your whole purpose is I am collecting funds to distribute for a charitable cause, it does it, your, your mission and your purpose is diminished by the government collecting taxes on that. So I, I can see that it does make sense to, to have that there, but I haven't fully thought about that. And I, and I want to be respectful here, but is, are you a charitable cause or but like, is that the premise just so I understand? Yeah. So it's interesting. It's an interesting question. It's something I've thought about more since I've been, you know, like I understood more about how nonprofit law works. It's basically corporate law with like a tax law overlay. And I think it's, the, the idea is to incentivize basically like these helpful things for society, right? That's kind of what our entire tax code is about. You know, we think about the tax code is, I don't know, 
like just being taxes. I don't know how many people really think about it, but the way we structured the tax code is about incentivizing different things. There's no reason that we should give tax breaks for mortgages over rent, but we choose right. to do that because we're incentivizing people owning homes. You can argue if that you, we need to do that or not, like why we do that, but that's a choice that we have made in the tax code. There are like mm -hmm. social justice policies in the tax code that we don't think about in the same way. And so I think that kind of applies also on charities and that goes to schools and churches, like nonprofit schools. You can get tax exempt status for that. It's your 501c3. Public schools are different because they're run by the government, right? So these are like private schools. If you're a private school, you can, you can be a nonprofit. Not all of them are, but you can be. And I think churches, it's the same idea of you know, you're serving the community, you're not there to make money is kind of the idea behind a lot of these nonprofits and just nonprofits in general, right? Like you are getting donations so that you can use them to help this aspect of the community. And that's why you can be a targeted nonprofit. Like one of the rules for nonprofits, normal nonprofits is that you can't get involved in politics. Like you're mm -hmm. not allowed to lobby. You're not allowed to support like particular political candidates with money or anything like that. Like those rules don't apply in the same way to churches. So like for churches, we see there's all these political candidates sometimes will come to churches and basically make speeches or like say a prayer or whatever it is. And so, I mean, like, as far as that goes to back to your original question, like me, I'm super against that. I hate that, you know, and I don't think that that should be the case. I hate like politicians coming to churches during campaign season yeah. to try and like talk. I don't like the idea of pastors going to the White House, which is something that really started under George W. Bush, who was kind of the first one who like tapped in to the evangelical population and then kind of brought in all those pastors into, into the White House to, I think Billy Graham was maybe the first one to talk to them basically about national policy and that kind of thing. There's, a, there's an overlap there that I don't love as far as like separation of church and state. And that's a little bit of a separate issue, but it's related to these like exemptions that you get, right? Because mm -hmm. it's it's what we're incentivizing and you it's a huge amount of money. You're not being taxed on anything. Some of these churches are huge congregations, thousands and thousands of people. They get thousands of donations. They're not taxed on any of that. So we as the like country are essentially subsidizing that. Yeah, I, I would argue that if, if you're, if you are, you know, 501c3 tax exempt, you know, status and as a church, then you should, it should be, I think, I think it's what the Johnson amendment or something like that, that's supposed to require you to stay out of politics, but, you know, maybe it's an enforcement issue rather than a, a legal one. Meaning I think that there is something in place that says we're not supposed to do that, but maybe it's just not enforced. I don't know if there is. I'm not sure what you're thinking I, of. Maybe there is. May, may, let me look for a second, but I, I support that as well. I think that if you're getting, if you're getting, like you said, tax exempt status, you know, taxpayers are not necessarily funding your operation because it's not like we're giving them money, but we're not making them pay money, then you should have to, I think, remain, you know, politically neutral. I think that that makes sense to me. Right. And it's like, I think one of the difficulties is that in terms of the political neutrality, you know, certain religious beliefs are going to lend themselves to opinions on issues, right? And that's like totally fine. That's that's not just free speech. That's also free exercise. And if you put a cap on that, then you're infringing on another right. But it's maybe defining better the lines of like, you're not allowed to have political candidates 
you know, like campaigning through your mm-hmm. church. Maybe it's, it's something that's more specific like that, because I think that it would be difficult to tell a pastor. And I, I actually wouldn't support this tell a pastor. They're not allowed to say, you know, I support this candidate. It's their right to be able to say that. Mm-hmm. Right. I agree. Yeah. So it is, it is the Johnson amendment adopted in 1954 to the IRS code as a condition for maintaining exemption from income taxes and other taxes, charitable organizations, including churches and affiliated groups were forbidden from participating or intervening in quote, any political campaign on behalf of, or in opposition to any candidate for public office. The amendment is named for then Senator Lyndon Johnson, who introduced the amendment out of concern for the facts forum and the committee for constitutional government. So I think the way that they get around this, and this is a real thing that happens, is these churches actually will invite all of the candidates to come Mm. and speak, but Mm -hmm. only certain ones actually come. And they're not saying, mm -hmm, right, right. I'm not not favoring a candidate, giving everybody a platform, but only this guy took me up on it. Right, exactly. And that guy's probably going to come because he knows these people are likely my voters, so it doesn't make sense for other people not to come because they'd be wasting their time where they could be campaigning in more beneficial churches that are more favorable to their positions. Or potentially could even hurt their candidacy to go to, to certain churches. I'm not sure, but I could see that. I could, I could see maybe some Democrat voters being like, why is that candidate going to that church, you know, to, to Mm -hmm. speak. To put maybe a cap on that is that roughly half of Americans feel either very or somewhat strong that the president holds religious beliefs, which I think is very interesting. Like it's, that the it's current tw- president does or that they should, or what do you mean? Yeah, so that the president to have strongly religious beliefs. So no matter who, who it is, 20% feel very strongly and 32% feel somewhat strongly that whoever holds the office of president have strong religious beliefs. Should have? What do you mean have? Like yeah, they, they should, should be have. religious. That they should have? Okay. Yeah, they should be yeah. religious, which is not surprising if you look at you know, our presidents to date, I think there's been like less well, that than is what five. I was going to just say. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. I, this is maybe perfect. We all are having group mind right now. I looked up the religious affiliations of the presidents and it's kind of interesting because the, the, it talks a lot about how the pattern of religious adherence changes a lot over the course of United States history because of established churches in the British colonies, like at the beginning. So there are some groups like Episcopalian who are very well represented in the presidents compared to the current membership of Mm. about 2% of the population. And that's because the Church of England, from which the Episcopal Church is derived, was the established church in New York and Virginia before the American Revolution. So Mm. Things like that I found really interesting. The the high note is that pretty much every president that we've ever had is either formally or informally, like either came out and said it and was very religious or was just like, yes, I'm Christian, but Christian. And then there are branches, of course, Protestant mm-hmm. or, I mean, lots and lots and lots of Protestants. And that include, includes Anglican, did I say that right? Baptist, things like that. And then we mentioned this the other day, only two Catholic. So I thought that was cool. It's current, our current president, President Biden, and then John F. Kennedy was the first. In oh man, I was going to get that actually, because I remember ah! that was 
that was a big deal that he was yeah. Catholic and not Protestant, yeah. actually. A big deal. Yeah. Super interesting. And then there are none that came out and said, you know, I'm atheist or anything like that. There was some, it says there was speculation that Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, and William Howard Taft about them being atheists during election campaigns, maybe like in a smear campaign to try to say bad things about them. And Mm -hmm. then it also talks about Jimmy Carter on the other end, using faith as a defining aspect of his campaign and tenure to hold the office. So I just thought that that was really interesting. I think I think of the United States as being so diverse and, and more diverse than other countries. And it is, I know we always talk about the the old white men running our country, but quite literally old white religious men have been running our country the whole time in this, in this branch of our government. And it is, it was a little staggering to really see it. Yeah. It's really interesting. I've heard speculation that it would be harder for a like fully secular atheist person to become president than like a woman to become president or another kind of minority person to become president, just because that is a value that is so closely held by so many people in the population and, and clearly is part of our tradition, at least of now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, going back to the stat that Cass brought up earlier, it says Christian is, is this is Pew Research data, Christian 70%, Catholic 20%, it's 90% of the country right there is at least identifies somewhat as religious. So that's like pretty extreme. And so, yeah, even if you have people that are curmudgeons about a woman holding the office, pales in comparison to the amount of people that would have you know pearl clutching if if an atheist brand and in fact i think you think about the newest supreme court justice like that was a huge push of support for her i cannot think of her name now but she's very religious and very much a traditional woman in the church with her multiple kids and her perfect little life and i think that that makes that always makes women more palatable right amy Amy barrett Barrett. thank you yeah So it's interesting that you brought up Jefferson, just as a side note, because I saw as well that people were like, uh, he's, he actually, he never came out when he was in office and said, I'm formally this. But what I did find, which is interesting, you know, he would be falling under that, that category we were discussing in the beginning of the show. This is a quote saying, working in four languages familiar to him, English, French, Greek, and Latin. Jefferson went through several copies of the New Testament following the scripture closely. With a pen knife, he would remove the sections he agreed with and found useful, and then he glued them together in his four-column book, one column for each language. Jefferson called his version of the New Testament the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. The Smithsonian exhibit includes one of the Bibles that Jefferson cut apart, as well as the one he created. With his rendering, Jefferson offered a New Testament narrative he found preferable to the original. Jefferson saw himself as a Christian in what he thought was the truest sense as one who saw Jesus as a moral exemplar and a teacher. He didn't have any use for miracles or supernatural, which he took to be additions added to the story later on. Notably, Jefferson's version ends with Jesus buried and does not include the resurrection. It's not religion. That's not even religion. That's just saying this, this person was a good moral teacher. Right. I, I just no find that interesting. involved in that. <laughs> right. A lot of people right. believe that, though, in their, in their own way. I remember hearing that a lot in life. Like you can take like the best lessons of religion Mm -hmm. and that's religion, but it is interesting, Aaron, to hear you say, no, it's not a religion unless there's faith involved. I think that's an an important distinction in a point of view. Yeah. I think that was, that is certainly one way I would define it. I think that's maybe what separates uh, in my supreme religious knowledge. I think (laughs) that that is probably one of the things that separates 
maybe Christianity and, and, you know, Islam from some of the other religions, maybe like Buddhism, where even not Buddhism, because Buddhism, you, you kind of have a certain element of faith in, in being resurrected and stuff. So mm-hmm. I think that, that faith is a, a key element to being, you know, quote, religious. I think that that does make sense. And Je- Jefferson was such a rationalist that, you know, he looked to, it seems like he looked to the Bible as the values and the morals rather than Right. It's just like, it's not actually theology if you just pick and choose what you like, <laughs> right. you know, like that's not, yeah. <laughs> that's not what it is. So yeah. Love that yeah. excerpt about Jefferson. It's interesting to me when I learned that the separation of church and state is not actually a, a real thing that is in any of our founding documents. It's not in the constitution. Like it's not a, a real thing. It was actually just a phrase used by Thomas Jefferson in a letter. Did you guys know this already? No, but I, I would probably disagree a little bit with that characterization. Like the, the phrase itself, separation of church and state isn't in the constitution. But I think the first amendment saying there can be no establishment. You can't, you can't, what is it? What's the, we shall make no law. Yeah. You should make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Like that is the concept of church separating church and state really. A little whiny dog here. (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, here's our here's our mascot. <laughs> oh, Dallas! He's coming in for pets. He's getting hungry. It's feeding time. Well, while Cassie is petting our very cute dog, Aaron, do you think that we have a separation of church and state today in the United States? Like with with how religious our founding was, do you think that that's a real thing that exists? Sort of, I guess, is kind of the best answer that I can give. I think that when you look at the fact that we give, you know, tax exemptions for churches, like arguably that isn't a total separation of church and state. But in some ways, I like I do think that we have it, you know, more than we think we do a little bit. It's it's just really interesting. I feel kind of caught in the middle on this issue because, well, I mentioned this in a prior podcast, but I'm Christian and not like just, you know, casually, like this is how I define my life. And I get frustrated with this idea that our, especially the Christian religion is always like under assault in the United States. I think that's like a very prominent view from people on the right. And I don't think that's true. Oh my God, I have to laugh because Dallas is on Zach's lap, licking his face, being adorable. And it's not a casual thing, you guys. He's a 90 pound dog. (laughs) (laughs) Erin's trying to bear her soul here. Hope I'm being attacked. (laughs) It's true. But anyway, so like if I look at the Supreme Court cases, you know, one of the things that people like bring up a lot is like, oh my gosh, you can't have prayer in schools. And there's like a little bit of a distinction there. You can't have like, public prayer over of a specific religion over schools but like you're allowed to pray in schools you can have little like bible study groups that kids form like there's it's just really overstating it to be like oh my god you're not allowed to pray in schools and that's something that like I got told a lot growing up like you got told not to pray at school or no I got told told? that that was like something that was being taken away from me like my right to pray in in my public high school was like not going to be protected basically no, not at all. I was in like a Bible study in high school where we prayed in the hallways, you know? And it's like, I, yeah. And it's the, the big important thing as far as our like jurisprudence goes is that the religions are treated equally. 
Right. And I think that like, there's a pushback against that, which I understand if you are like convinced of the truth of what you believe, you know, you want that to be more prevalent, but like, we're also not in a theocracy, right? So you have to like hold those two things. I think that the whole like Christmas is under attack like every year, like I kind of, I find that like pretty ridiculous. Like we have a lot of religious freedom in the United States and the things that infringe on our religious freedom are things that apply across the board to everyone, right? And there's even, even within those, there's exceptions for religious like practices and preferences. I kind of feel like that as far as religion and politics are concerned. And that doesn't totally answer your question, but I do, I do think there's an intertwining of like religion and government. And a portion of that is like actually inevitable because it's how a lot of people make their decisions on what they believe politically. Well, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think, honestly, it does answer the question a little bit, Aaron, because it isn't Congress shall make no law, right? It's But you kind of almost have to make some laws to, like, create the border. You know, you almost have to, to write some laws to say, here's all the stuff that we're not going to we're not going to talk about. So if you're a church and you're, you know, have a religious exemption and you're, you're a school and you can't advocate for any certain denomination, you know, public school and you can't argue for a denomination, you know, prayer or whatever. Like that makes sense because then at that point, by you writing the law to say you can't do that, it keeps from infringing and trampling on other religious beliefs. So like by creating the law, it almost protects all the all the religions in in that sense, which I think is a good thing, right? It it ensures we do have freedom of religion in the country. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, I mentioned that case about peyote and the the Native Americans before. So that was called the Employment Division versus Smith. It was in 1990. And in direct response to Smith, the Congress passed the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act, which you may have heard of. It's colloquially known as RIFRA. And it basically is like an expansion of the First Amendment. And it says the government mm-hmm. shall not substantially burden a person's exercise of religion, even if the burden results from a rule of general applicability, unless it demonstrates that the application of the burden to the person is in furtherance of a compelling governmental interest. So that's a little bit like gobbledygook, but what it basically means is that you can't burden someone's exercise of religion unless there is a compelling government interest, which is a very high legal standard. So there were even rules that changed after this. Like if you are under 21, you're allowed to take communion, which is alcohol, right? Like that's an exception Mm -hmm. to a law that we have. And it's interesting with the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act. I think sometimes people think of it as being this like conservative law, but this law was almost unanimously passed. And it's interesting because there was a push, I think, on the conservative side of this fear of like, oh, we're going to have all these like, you know, facially neutral laws that impact our like religious exercise of like particularly Christianity. But then people on the left were really concerned about all these other minor religions, minority religions, basically Mm -hmm. like having protection. And so this this law was like almost unanimously passed. And it is a law that is very protective of the exercise of religion. Mm -hmm. Well, and I just want to talk about the the Christmas thing because I every year, right? That always comes up. There's always you always hear about that. And I I felt I like I felt like I was tricked. I was like, yeah, you're right. Christmas is under attack. But it's like if I look if I step back and look at it, like okay, maybe corporations aren't flaunting Christmas as much, right? Like maybe they're being more uh, inclusive to other beliefs, even though ninety percent of the country is believes this way. But that's fine. 
it's whatever your corporation, you do what you want to do. I really don't care. But like from a legal standpoint, there's not like a law that's coming out being like, can't celebrate Christmas, neener, neener. Yeah, maybe like, it's not like Macy's Day Parade back in the 1950s status, but in terms of like our day-to-day existence, I really don't see much of an impact. And it's not 90%, just to remind everybody, it's like 65%. So it doesn't, if 65% of the population wants there to be like crosses on their Starbucks cups, like that's really different than being like mortally offended if the cup isn't red with a Christmas tree. Like that, those two are not equal, like my religious freedom being trampled by replacing it with blue snowflakes. So that's, that's where I get frustrated. This is obvious, right? Like, of course, that's overreacting. I want everybody to be able to do and practice whatever they want to do, but it's irrational to get upset by things like that. Honestly, the fact that like Starbucks cups had to be basically just like an ombre red that one year because and it was people on the right and the left. Like the left does this too. The left exaggerates like how much religion is involved in certain things. And that that also bothers me because it's like, okay, yeah, they put in like, I don't even know what was on the cup that whoever was offended by whatever, you know, and like, that's just frustrating. Well, and then it perpetuates the stereotype that the left is always offended. Mm -hmm. Like, let's not do this, people. Let's remember that (laughs) Starbucks is a corporation selling coffee. And their goal is to make money. Like, they don't care about you or religion religion or anything. Like, I I saw something and and I just think it goes, it's so indicative, right? Like, I saw during Pride Month, I think it was this last year, this side-by-side comparison of, like, all these different brands, like Mercedes and, I don't know, Exxon and whatever. Like, it was, like, major companies that we've all heard of. and the US Twitter account was all like, you know, supportive of Pride Month and they had changed their logo to be the rainbow. And then in other parts of the world that are extremely less tolerant of LGBTQ community, regular old logo. It's like the corporation doesn't care about anything else except for making money. That's a really good point. And so like the whole Starbucks, like Christmas cup thing, it's like they're if if they get brought up in the headlines year after year because their cup changes and it's not religious enough or it's too religious or you know whatever they're going to take the path of least resistance so people go into their co- their store to buy coffee. And this is going off a little bit because of course that's LGBTQ but I do think it's relevant because how do we feel about I feel like when there there things go around on Instagram and, and other social media of lists of companies and lists of places that they support or donate and causes that they, you know, are for or against. And then we inevitably end up in this position where we're like, oh, I can't eat at Chick-fil-A. They hate gay people. Like the leap happens. That's again, another LGBTQ example, but there's like these, you know, they're supporting these big, big churches that they believe in They're a corporation and they've got founding members or, or people on the board that have decided this is where we spend our money. And then sometimes they donate to these really awful places or places that we, some people who would normally patronize the company think are awful. Like, I know that that's not, that's not necessarily politics, but I don't know. Does, does that relate? Is that, am I off on a tangent here? We might be venturing into not religion in the USA anymore uh, territory, but I think it does warrant a higher discussion because from the conservative standpoint, like this gets brought up a lot, right? Chick-fil-A and In-N-Out and I can't think of other ones right now, but Hobby, like Lobby. It does, Hobby Lobby, thank you. Yeah, so it does get brought up, right? But 
my perspective is that it's selective. You know, it's 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 the the outrage is selective based off of trendy or what's people seek that can be maybe politically or culturally advantageous at the time. If we really were cared as much as we say we care about all these things, you know, why are we still buying Nike and Apple and all this stuff? Because like and like Nestle and yeah. uh, Gap, like it's there's there's so many like Gap has like this huge string of human rights violations and like people still buy from there. And it's like, yeah. I think you're right. It is selective. You know, it's selective outrage over specific issues. Yeah. So I think we could we could probably talk about that of like what is what is a like consistent standard to hold when you're boycotting a company? Because my stance is like if if you're going to boycott a company for donating to a cause that they feel, you know, a belief in, then it's kind of making like the the Chick-fil-A thing, right? As long as Chick-fil-A isn't discriminating against gay people in their in their or LGBTQ people, I'm not just as gay people, but as long as Chick-fil-A isn't discriminating and saying, no, no, you can't come into our Chick-fil-A because you're gay. I almost would prefer to keep politics and, and all that stuff out of the consumer decision because it just creates this kind of cultural toxicity almost. But isn't that if like we're gonna... a little bit anti-free market though, because isn't that like the whole point of the free market is if a company's doing something you don't like, you don't have to go to them. I'm not saying there should be like a law or anything. I, my mm-hmm. preference is, is that those things would, would not be as weighted as heavy as they are simply because we all still have to live together. I'm not saying you can't do it, but I think that like in order for us to have like a, a kind of like nice side here, people want to get along. Cause otherwise I feel like if I take it to the logical conclusion, it's like, okay, well, I'm this company and then here's the causes I donate to. And maybe you want to do that. But I feel like it's inviting maybe too much scrutiny into a business, but maybe that's just my take. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's, that's interesting to me because it under like a free market correction theory, Mm -hmm. I would think that that would actually be really important. You know, the way the business runs and who they donate to, like you can choose if you want to go to them or not. And that should I don't see why that wouldn't have as much impact on your decision of which businesses to use as like how good their product is. I think, I think maybe it does, but I think maybe where, where I, why I feel like that is because, okay, if you feel that way, then just don't patron that establishment. But when you're, when you're trying to, and this is why I feel this way is because it's, I feel like it's selective because, you know, people saying, oh, we need to change the, Washington Redskins football team and we need to take Aunt Jemima off the syrup bottle and blah, blah, blah. But then there's these other, you know, terrible violations that companies are doing that don't get the attention and don't get the scrutiny. And so I feel like, well, why, why are we bringing up only these select instances of when, when a corporation does something bad or I disagree with versus the other ones. But I, I, again, I think it's, it's selective and it's, it's based off of what is advantageous at the time. And I don't know how much religion plays into that, <laughs> trying to tie it back into our, our discussion for this week, but I'm sure. I just want to finish my thought. What I would hope is happening and what I think we're already seeing evidence of is that consumers are becoming more and more interested in knowing what companies are doing behind the scenes, where they're spending their money, where they're getting their labor, you know, the, the clean beauty market is a big deal right now. People want to make sure that like things aren't being tested on animals and that it's got good ingredients. I think that this is happening more and more. And I know it's not necessarily related to religion, but, but maybe to tie it back in, I think we just care about 
we care more about like a holistic view of things than maybe we did a long time ago where we could separate things out and a person's religion was a person's religion and that's fine and it you know could make them a like a stand-up guy or a well-rounded person but it wasn't their everything and I think now we we feel a, a, like we should know or like we should be allowed to know every little thing about every person and organization and it makes it hard to be on board with anyone or anything right does that make sense yeah because that's what happens when you say oh you're a republican you voted for donald trump in 2016 and then you lose friends right yeah so yeah okay yeah so i i actually want to follow up on something that you said cassie you know in terms of like in the past religion not necessarily being your everything I don't think that's true. I, I don't think that's the difference, you know, I like, cause people in the past, like religion, I think religion is probably like a bigger deal in history than it is now. I think the the difference is more how political religion is, is now mm -hmm. and how much it's tied to specific political beliefs. And so I mentioned this before, but like yeah. W Bush really kind of started this like modern push of kind of mingling politics and religion and by mingling i mean like he campaigned on it mm -hmm. campaigned on i have christian values my christian values mean this for these right. specific political topics and then like using that basically using kind of religion and faith to get votes really that's like that's right. sort of the strategy whether it's like genuine he genuinely believed that or not like that's the effect of it and it's just kind of crazy that like Donald Trump has also done that very much did that of yeah he didn't really push the whole like I am a Christian thing but he for sure was like your Christian values are important and we need right them for, like this and this and this and he yeah. like catalyzed the evangelical vote and if you are tying your politics to like these things that you think are just true about the world you're going to be really, really, really firm on like the mm -hmm. specific issues that you care about. And like, I'm talking about it on like the conservative level, but it's, that's true for me. I feel like people think I'm such a contradiction sometimes because I'm a more liberal person that is a Christian, but you know, when I like break it down and critically think about it, I'm like, well, these values really align with the things it's not everything obviously it can't be right but when I look at like kind of the overall thing I'm like this is this lines up more for me from how I read the bible from what I see like that's very important to focus on a lot of people are going to disagree with that like even saying that is kind of controversial but mm -hmm. like yeah it's very tied to that but it's just like so ironic to me that a person like Donald Trump who I think is just the antithesis of like a Christian in the way he lives his life, the way he behaves and speaks and just like, not even recently, just like in his life, you know, and right. that he's become this like faith or face of the like evangelical political movement. There's a whole bunch of reasons for that, that you can get into with like churches and teachings. And I think that Donald Trump didn't come out of nowhere, right? Like there was ground for him coming into kind of this evangelical tradition already, but it's just, that's the part about it. Like specifically Trump, but just like the politics in general. Right. That like is really tough for me for sure. It's kind of like the filibuster episode where it's like, if it's convenient for a politician to want the filibuster or not want it, depending on if their party's in power or not, 
like it's a tool for them to use at their disposal. And I know that that's probably not always the case, right? I'm not saying that every politician who runs and, and is religious is doing it, you know, to get votes. Like I think that probably people generally, you know, for the most part are religious and especially if they're from the South, right? But I do think it, it especially the Donald Trump example, feels like, okay, you're, you're not really religious, but you're going to go along with it at the minimum ability so you can pass, so you can get the support of people that actually are. And I mean, the one that I, I, I don't, again, I'm not a religious scholar. I don't know a lot, but I know like abortion is kind of a big deal in the Catholic faith and Joe Biden coming out in favor of, of the, of abortion and, and being abortion is like an okay thing. Again, it feels like, well, you're kind of picking and choosing what is important to you based off of your political situation, right? You're, you say you're a Catholic and Catholics are, you know, vehemently against abortion. But then when it goes against your political agenda, then, well, maybe not so much. So I just think it, it can be it can be misused for political reasons. I think that that's yucky. I don't know that there's a soul alive that believes 100 percent in their religion. And I don't think that it's fair to say that somebody picking their interpretation of their religion is always just to please or to appear righteous. Like, I think there's lots of people of different faiths who could believe in or against abortion, as an example. I think that you're equating religion with religion politics And those are two different things because when you're talking about someone not believing 100% in their religion, that's different than saying they don't 100% believe in, you know, the party's platform that lines up like. You're right. Those are different things. With religion, right? Those are two different things. And so, like, I actually think it would be more accurate just to say, like, people don't believe 100% with one party or the other. It's not actually Mm -hmm. like that part of it is not even necessarily about religion because that's just, but you use your religion to base, you know, some of your beliefs or or, or all of your beliefs on like what you think about politics. Did you guys ever watch The West Wing? I watched like two episodes and I got really bored. There's a very famous scene where a talk show host is, is like defending calling homosexuality an abomination by saying, this is what the Bible says in this verse. And then President Bartlett, who is Martin Sheen, does this whole monologue that's very interesting that I have always found interesting that says that, that he's basically like coming right out and being like, oh, good. I see that you've like read the Bible and, and I have some questions for you. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always clean the table when it was her turn. What would be a good price for her? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean. Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother, John, for planting different crops side by side? 
Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made of two different threads? Think about those questions, would you? Now, I know that this is a show and I know I come to this as a person who did not attend church, then attended church from grade six to 12, and then some in college, and then have not since. I know, and you guys know, but now everyone listening knows, that's my point of view. I think it's interesting when people say, I am this, and I believe this, and then I think you inherently have to choose, if if we're talking about these very old texts that define a religion, you cannot, I don't believe that it's possible to adhere to every single thing. And I think that that, while sometimes is used by politicians to be convenient or, or just to make them look popular, I think other times it can be just genuinely having to choose how you define your faith. I think it's personal. Yeah. So, so I have to like jump in because something that like every person who is a Christian is going to say to like this particular example is that you're reading things from the Old Testament law in Exodus and Leviticus against something that's in the New Testament. And this is the theological like thing of, yeah, I don't know. This is just theology. It's the Old Testament law is no longer like in place. And that's clear in the Bible that it's, we're in, under the new covenant now, not the old covenant. And I like, I don't think we need to get like too deep into theology, but like, that's actually not a good example I think if you're going to bring up like stuff in the Bible because almost everyone who's a Christian does not adhere adhere to saying like the Old Testament law still applies like that it's just not true like in terms of what applies to states it's not prescriptive but if you're like a better example in the New Testament would be there's verses about slaves and masters we don't adhere to that now and it's more of a like if you look at the cultural context that's really talking about a specific kind of like more like indentured servitude like slavery type thing not like the kind of slavery that we did in the united states which was race-based but people use those verses from the new testament to like justify slavery and i think that's like where kind of the more interesting thing like conversations come up because I, I just feel like I need to make that distinction because people who I think are religious are going to like look at that and just be like, well, that's not like theologically that doesn't line up in the same way. But I think it's a it's a good point that our culture changes and the way we read the Bible is filtered through a cultural lens. And that's mm-hmm. why it's so important to actually be like critically thinking about this. And I think that there is a big population that does not critically think about this. And the fact that anti-intellectualism and anti-science are starting to become synonymous with evangelical Christianity, that's a huge problem. Like Christianity should be a thinking religion. This is not Mm -hmm. about like, oh yes, you told me this is what this says. And so I just believe it, but like it's drifting away from that. And I think it's actually becoming less and less theological and more and more political. And that's like one of the biggest problems with it today. Yeah, because the Christianity does. Oh, go ahead, guess. I was just going to say that's really well said, and I think that that totally aligns with what we are trying to do here too. Because we're like, okay, these at least for me, these are founding documents that that our country certainly not as old as the Bible, but our country was founded and had all these documents written. And I think something that I hear a lot and and believe a lot is, oh man, do these documents really need to still govern us today? Don't we? Don't we move and change and grow every year a little bit further away from, from this? Do we need to have another look at it? Should we really be blindly accepting that 
this is the way in which we should be structuring our society. And I think that it's a good point, Aaron, and a good reminder that, and hopefully, hopefully, maybe I got away from it, but that's what I believe too. I believe that we should be looking at it through the lens of what is, what is true and relevant now. And maybe I lost people by getting caught up in saying, making it sound like I think people pick and choose. I think maybe some do, but I do think it's important to look at it through the lens of. Okay. So I also just have to clarify, and I'm not trying to make things confusing, but like, I actually think that's the wrong way to read the Bible. You shouldn't be filtering it through your cultural lens because that's how you read it incorrectly. I'm saying that's what we do it today. That's all have this like bias that we come in with, but like what we should be doing is trying to figure out like what it actually says and what it means. And the Bible, like theoretically, if you believe in it, which I do, is a book that transcends culture and time. And so whatever you think it means in your cultural moment, you have to be critical of that. And I think that's like the distinction I'm trying to make is that we shouldn't actually be looking at it for it to say whatever we want it to say in our current like cultural moment. It says As a what justification it says. for our choices or our exactly. beliefs. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's interesting because this there's this idea in a lot of the like conservative evangelical tradition that that's what they're doing. You know, they're using the Bible and reading it as it was like meant to be read. And it means these particular things while not being willing to admit that they have a cultural lens too. And they're viewing it through their cultural lens. And I think like we do this on, whether you lean more like right or left, if you're like someone who wants to study the Bible, I think it does actually require like some effort, you know, and some work to, to be critical of what you think it says, because you're going to bring in your own opinion to it based on the culture that we're in. And that's always going to be true, right? Like, doesn't, isn't that the difference between like how people interpret law, Aaron? I can't yes. think of what it's called, but can you briefly mention like that, like, like some of the Supreme Court justices are this and some are that, do you know what I'm talking about? What is that? Like originalist versus I don't remember what the other term is, but activists, maybe. Yeah. It's like a reading of the law is like more literal as like, this is what it says versus reading it as Are you talking what, like spirit it, of, what those precedents should like, like in the spirit of it or like spirit what of the it law should versus letter of the law. Is that it? I is think that, you're talking about originalism versus like activism, you know, cause it's, it's what did it originally mean? And we're going to apply that exactly the same way today you know, as far as the law goes, or you could be on the more like activist side and say the law kind of means this, but we're like adapting it for our like modern society. And I think that makes sense when you're talking about like law, it does actually have to develop with society. And like the way we practice Christianity now might actually like, it's going to look a little bit different than a hundred years ago because society is different, but some of those core things should filter through in the same way, right? Like if the basis of it is this, and we're talking about Christianity now, like I'm, I apologize to people who are like of other religions. We don't know as much about them. I'm sorry. But if you believe that like the basis of, of this religion is, you know, a God that like sent his son to die for you and has saved you, like the basis of that is love. Like that shouldn't be what's changing across cultures. There's like specific things like that. Like the idea of radical generosity, the idea of protecting the oppressed, like all of these are like fundamental foundational pillars of of Christianity or they should be 
And those are the kinds of things that need to be continuing across cultures, right? Like that's and more that those, important. And that those supersede the other things that you can nitpick and you can point to to say, oh, well, but the Bible says this, but the message is that those principles that you laid out among others are foundational. They are what make up the religion. And so those are the things that need to be adhered to or should be adhered to beyond everything else. I think that's kind of what like, that's sort of the calculus that you have to make when you're talking to, when you're given the limited options of two mm -hmm. parties and you right. can take that right and come down right. on either side. But I think that there's an analysis that needs to happen there. And like, right. I very much, you know, like have been told by people, like, I don't understand how you can vote left. Like people really don't get that, you know? And I think they think sometimes that I'm just like, lost in San Francisco politics or something like that, you know, because this is where I live. But it's like, no, I carefully think about it. It's like, what mm -hmm. do I think like actually lines up better with what, you know, I see. And again, I think you can come out on the other side, but you have to like really think about it. It shouldn't be just like an across the board. I'm a Christian, so I have to vote right. I think that's I really think, thoughtful. And you would hope, yeah, you would hope that that's what everyone's doing. Right. And, and sadly that's not, but you would, you know, I'm a pretty optimistic, hopeful person. And so I would hope that everyone from a common voter to people running for office are inevitably coming to big decisions with, with this fundamental belief system. And for many, that's a religion. And it defines who they are. It defines how they move through the world and how they believe that they should treat other people and be treated. And so of course that's going to permeate into the laws and the people that we vote into office. Like it's, it's inevitable. And again, we've talked about the percentage a lot, but like, that's a big percentage of our country, 65 ish percent of people having this in varying levels, but core belief, same core belief. So I'm interested in, in protecting people who aren't in the 65%, but also the people who are like, this is, this is what America looks like. Right. And it's more than the way we protect it, at least under the law, it's, it's not viewed under the law as like a choice of something that you can just change about yourself. Like it's more immutable than that kind of like your race or your ethnicity or something like religion is kind of on that same level of you're not expected to change what you think to fit into like certain legal categories or something in the same way that you can't change your your race that's a good point you would never it would never be appropriate to come to someone and say that they need to change their race or their religion like you would exactly. you would equally assume right. that they are inseparable from a mm -hmm. person's personhood yep right exactly but yeah but then exactly we come back around to well how do you come down on on either side how do you how do you do something so so specific as pick a party <laughs> when everybody's just interpreting things differently based on what they have taken away at their, you know, their church sermon that week. It's, it seems impossible that we ever agree. <laughs> you would think, you would think with how messy politics are and, and people are that there would be like 45 parties. The fact that we have two <laughs> and that that's the problem is a little bit baffling when you think about because it. Because of our voting system. Yeah, it's not it's not because we couldn't have more parties, it's because of how we've set up voting. But you're right, it is incredibly complex because you're going to have to you're going to have to make a lot of concessions if you are, right? I, I feel like it's a balance. If you are extremely devout in your religious beliefs 
and those come into conflict with both parties, you're going to have to make a choice or you're just not going to vote. Right. And so you're going to have to make concessions to say, well, what is, what is, what is really core and foundational? Maybe people are making that calculus and maybe they're not, you know, my only comment I was making earlier was just that I think that politicians know that, uh, you know, this is the cynic in me. So I think that people are aware of that. Donald Trump, I think is a perfect example that even if he maybe isn't, you know, Christianity isn't at his core foundational beliefs, he's not going to turn down, you know what I mean? And so I, I think that that's the only thing I was saying earlier is that I think politicians know that. And yeah, there's definitely things being taken. People are being taken advantage of. Yeah, and for sure. That's where I get frustrated. For sure. Not because they're wrong, but because people know that they are appealing to a core part of value system. Yeah. Belief in who they are. So, but maybe that's not, I don't know. Is that more with the system? Is that more with the people that are rising in the system that are able to you know, leverage that kind of power? It's, but then you have to think about how they got there and who endorsed that. It's a lot. It's a lot. This is a big topic. It's a lot. And then there's personal responsibility, right? right. <laughs> there's a whole level of like, you know, are Donald you- Trump didn't happen in a vacuum and there's, right other for sure there were like structures and and other leaders that laid the road for that but there was also a lot of people who just immediately wanted to follow him who still want to follow him you know and like I there's a level of like okay well what do we do as people you know to to think about these things too so but it's yeah it's certainly like a tough topic you know because you don't and we're we're very wary I think of questioning people's like religion and beliefs and that kind of thing which you know I'm all about talking about it I think it's yes yes another thing yet another thing that like we shouldn't be as afraid to get into a conversation about I totally agree I mean this is we're literally mixing like the the cyanide and arsenic of political or I mean of conversational you know taboos right like don't talk about like religion politics and like salary right so we just did two of them today but I think I think it is important to talk about. And I think one of the things I saw in researching for this week was that exposure to religious or religion in general doesn't not only make people more tolerant of that religion, but also other religious individuals as well. And so I think that by discussing politics and especially politics and religion, as we're doing here, you do become more tolerant and accepting of people that are different from you and like there's nobody else like you in the country. Everybody else, everybody is different from you. Even if they are, you know, the same demographic and religion and blah, blah, blah. Like there's going to be something that divides us yeah, or is different. So I, I think talking about it can only, as long as you're doing it from a position of like understanding and curiosity, it can only benefit us. I love that. I totally agree. All of that. And I would just encourage people on top of that to continue to be curious above judgmental, above, we've learned so much today and we've known each other for quite honestly, like almost 10 years as a group. So it's, you can literally never know everything about a person, certainly people you don't know. So that's my first note, always be curious. And then the other one is just the world needs exactly who you are and we need the way you think about things and we need you to vote always for what you believe in and for what you think matters and for who you think is going to enact the best change and the best path forward. Just as a reminder, it's not a safe bet to just say, I can't wholeheartedly agree with, you know, 
column A or column B. And so I'm just going to like, let it happen. It's, I didn't vote, I think in my first and or second election that I was allowed to, I'm, I'm sitting across from people who are probably like, heathen. <laughs> but I want to be honest with you guys. I, this is not something that I ever thought as a topic, I could understand fully or care enough about, or that it made that much of a difference because I'm probably a liberal in California. So who cares? But it does. It always does. And I just want to remind people, like, if you have questions, ask, if you disagree, ask, look something up, listen to a podcast, recommend our podcast, (laughs) like reach (laughs) out to us. We're not experts, but we're always willing to talk about it and to listen. And I think it's gotten us really far. So I would hope you guys would take that away. Well, and if there's an issue that, you know, we've been talking about fitting you nicely into categories, like message your, you know, write your congressman. Like if you disagree, like that's an avenue that if, if they don't align with you, like write them because they represent you and, and you can have influence that way. Okay. I think we're going to wrap up. Thanks for the conversation, guys. Yeah. Thank you. And thanks for all your um, religious expertise this week, Aaron. It was like very (laughs) enjoyable. And for your personal take and your honesty and your candor. I know that that's not easy, but we're really thankful. So thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. All All right, right. friends, please, if you liked it or if you got this far, first of all, well done. And thank you. We're so excited that you're here. If you haven't, we would love if you would rate us five stars wherever you're listening. Apple Podcasts allows you to do five stars and write a review. They can be separate or together. So if you're feeling so inclined, do both. And then I would just like to challenge you guys. You can think of someone in your head right now, as I'm saying this, that might enjoy listening to this podcast or could get something from it. I would really encourage you to just send it along. Yeah. I think it, I think it could be really great if we were all having more conversations like this. That's of course why we started this in the first place. So think of somebody in your head that might enjoy this or benefit from it, or it could start a conversation in your life and try it out, send it off. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a great rest of your week and we'll catch you soon. Thanks everyone. Thank you guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Reframers pod. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please rate and review us five stars and subscribe so you can always catch our latest episode. You can also find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Reframers pod. And you can email us at reframerspod at gmail.com. 